for the lesson this morning. So, it's good to be with you this morning. Phil asked me to teach today, and uh, who could ever decline an opportunity to teach a Sunday school lesson on Pentecost Sunday, right? So, I, I appropriately wore my red tie, and, uh, and that's where I want to start, but we're going to go from there. I'd actually need your help in constructing um, our lesson this morning. So we're going to start with building the cornerstone. Is, is this on? Yeah. Can you hear me now? <laughs> A little bit better. I don't want to have to lean over the whole time. So, um, so let's begin at the beginning. So where does the beginning start? In Genesis, right? Genesis 1. So we'll start there. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Right, we know that. Um, and then we have Adam and Eve. We're going to go real quickly. Luckily, Jason's not here to, uh, to correct me on my very basic uh, Old Testament. We're going to go through quickly. But um, So God creates heaven and earth. God creates Adam and Eve. They mess up. They sin. And uh, the sin of Adam and Eve follows us throughout history. We have Cain and Abel, um, Joseph going into Egypt, all of these stories. But I want to focus on some of the early creation stories that we find in Genesis. Let's move our way up to Noah. So God creates heaven and earth, and um, we uh, do not do a good job of um, keeping uh, God's creation um, you know, in the way that God wanted it to be. So what does God decide to do? Flood. Okay, so he destroys the earth, the flood. <clears throat> Noah comes to rest on the ark in the ark on top of Mount Ararat. What happens next? What happens after Noah and his family land? What's the next thing that happens in the Bible? Does anybody know? <laughs> well, I'm getting ready to tell you. You know this, but you just didn't know where it came. So, in chapter 11 of Genesis, this is what happens next. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Sinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we shall be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. What is that? What's that story? It's the Tower of Babel, right? Okay. So, as soon as... You know, God creates a second new creation. They immediately uh, set about trying to um, replace God, build a tower and, and replace God. But it's interesting. They all had one language, right, and, and all the same words. So what does God do? This is what God does. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, 
and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So this is kind of the bookend of, of our cornerstone for the lesson today. It's the opposite of Pentecost, isn't it? Okay. At the beginning, we have one language, everybody's using the same words, and they use that for the wrong purpose. They're, they're trying to usurp God. So God scatters them across the earth and gives everyone a different language. Now, we know this, that when we're not able to communicate with each other, we can't work together. Right? That's, you know, we're seeing that today. When we're not able to communicate with each other, we have a hard time working with each other. So, in this case, God, you know, multiplies the language, scatters everyone everywhere. Um, that's one end. Now let's move to the other end. Today, uh, Pentecost Sunday, uh, you probably heard in uh, the services this morning um, the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and I'm just going to read part of that again today. So, this is the mirror image of the Tower of Babel. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear in each of us in our own native language, Perithians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, yeah, um, Pamphylic, where is Jason now? Yeah. Um, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So what does this mean? What, you know, lots of things that we can take out of this. But here's where I want to take this lesson. So here God restores unity. I mean, if you look at it the other end of this, this story, we have God restoring unity. But how does God do it? He could have recreated the one language, right? A universal, single language, all the same words. Everybody understands everything the same way. That's how it was before. God chose not to do it that way. How did God choose to do it? He chose to do it by speaking to each person in their own distinct, unique, diverse language. What does that reveal to us about God? One of the things I think that reveals to us about God is that God values that diversity. That God values the, the fact that we 
see God in different ways. And we speak different languages. We're from different places. Um, God created a diverse world and apparently found that very pleasing because he maintained that. And yet, at Pentecost, brought to us a transcendent act that allows us to be unified all as children of God. That's what God is, is helping us recognize at Pentecost. We're all children of God. We just do it differently. We see God differently. And we know this, right? Within this own classroom, we, we worship God um, perhaps uh, using contemporary music. We feel very emotional. Some of us worship God um, in a more formal manner with um, choruses and uh, classical music. Maybe we approach God intellectually. Maybe we approach God emotionally. Um, there are many ways that God speaks to us, not in the same way, right? It's not universal, but in our own unique and distinct ways, God speaks to us. So the cornerstone of our lesson is that God made known to us that we are unique individuals, that we're diverse, and God created us in many different ways, and we approach God differently. And yet there's this one thing that unifies us. What is it that unifies us? It's that we're all children of God. Regardless of how far out God scattered us among the earth, and we have now different languages, different races, different ethnicities, come from different countries, we look at God differently, and yet we're all pulled together, we're all unified by this Holy Spirit uh, that we celebrate today. I think Paul talks about it um, even a little more uh, concisely for us uh, in Galatians. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible where Paul recognizes that we're all children of God and that when we see each other as unique but all children of God that we no longer see Jew or Greek, right, slave or free, male or female. We're all children of God regardless of those distinctions. And this is important. Paul isn't saying there's no longer Jews nor Greeks. Jews and Greeks still exist. Male and female still exist. It's just that those differences no longer divide us. It's that we're all together unified by the Holy Spirit as children of God. Okay? Okay, that's the starting point. Okay? We're all children of God notwithstanding those things that distinguish us from each other. So Phil had asked that, you know, gave me the option of, of teaching on um, a variety of subjects. And so here's how I'd like to go from here. You can, it's revealed as we go along what this lesson is about. But we're starting with the fact that we're all children of God created differently, unified by the Holy Spirit. When I reflect on my own childhood, I recall growing up in the 70s that this idea that we are all connected in some way, that we're all different, 
but we're but you know we all want to be together singing in harmony drinking a coca-cola right hand in hand on the field everybody remember the commercial yeah i'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony um ray stevens now, i'm not talking about the street but he had another song um, you remember ray stevens song everything is beautiful and it starts off with children singing uh, jesus loves the little children all the children of the world red and yellow black and white they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And then he starts singing, everything is beautiful in its own way. He doesn't say everything is beautiful in the same way. He sings, everything is beautiful in its own way. So when I was growing up, that was kind of a neat thing to be connected with people with different languages and different countries and different backgrounds. Um, different histories. Um, I don't feel that same way today. So when we talk about foreigners, when we talk about people that are different from us, what is our initial reaction? When I say foreigner, I, okay, I'll throw out the word immigrant. What happens when you think separation. immigrant? Separation in a lot of cases. Yeah, separation. Maybe a little fear, right? We're right. I'm sorry. Interested in knowing about the country they came from. Uh huh. And ways that we can help. Right. So um, it, it's a different feeling than the one, the world that I grew up in, and, I'm, and maybe the world you grew up in, and and, and there's ebbs and flows in our history, but I want to talk about immigration today and, and starting with the point that we started with, with that cornerstone. Um, there are different ways that we can talk about it, and I'll go ahead and tell you the way I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it from a political standpoint, okay? So you can be relieved of that. That's, that's off the table, okay? Although I hope, right, that our faith informs our politics you know, other, rather than the other way around. But, um, but we're not talking politics today. But I think it might be helpful, helpful for us to figure out a way that we might, as devoted Christians living in 2017, might think about this and see if there are ways that God is calling us um, to be faithful witnesses in a very diverse world where we're encountering and bumping up against people of different faiths, different religions, different backgrounds, languages, right, and ethnicities. So from a faith standpoint, let's look at our own Judeo-Christian background. You can't talk about the Israelites. You can't talk about the Jewish faith without understanding how important their history of migration is. I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, Joseph goes into Egypt. There's a famine. His brothers go and find him there because you know they need what's in Egypt. You have the Israelites growing as a nation in, in Egypt. Well, what happens to the Israelites in Egypt? Yeah, turned into slaves. They're being oppressed. So God sends Moses to do what? 
lead them out. You know, they're migrants now. They're immigrants. They're moving into a new land. They're sojourners moving across the desert trying to find a promised land where they can live in accordance with God's will. I mean, that's our story, right? Thanksgiving, you know. We left those nations in Europe so that we could come to the U.S. to, to worship the way we want to worship. Um, so the Israelites now inhabiting the land of Judea, what happens next? They're off to Babylon. They're deported, right? They're deported out of their country into Babylon and they're migrants again, strangers in a strange land. Um, what, what do Jews at Passover talk about? It talks about their journey of strangers moving from one land to another. Their history is soaked in this identity of being migrants moved from place to place to place trying to find a place to live. And they're dispersed again until 1947. The United Nations sets up the country of Israel so that they can come back to a place. Again, they're migrating. Their history is one of migration. So if you want to understand our, the Judeo part of our Judeo-Christian heritage, you have to start with that identity that Jews were migrants, and they still are. And they, they're all over the world in the diaspora, but they all want to, they see they have the home state of Israel that they can go back to. Let's move into our own Christian. Let's move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Christ is born. He's in the stable. And he's visited by whom? What, what three people visit? <laughs> yeah, I'm throwing softballs here. Okay. Um, yeah, so the three wise men come to visit Jesus in the stable. Where do they go from there? Well, they do something first. They go, to the king. they go to King Herod and tell him about Jesus. So what does King Herod do? Threaten the lives of all the firstborn. He threatens the lives of all the firstborn. So what do Mary, Joseph, and Jesus do? Yeah. Yeah. They, they move to Egypt. They are the classic definition of a refugee, right? They're under threat in their own home. Um, fear of being killed so they and probably not the only ones a lot of people probably left and went into Egypt for safety that, that's what a refugee is so we look at Jesus and he begins his life as a refugee and you can't help but think that that informs us as Christians as well so when we look at um, this notion of migration of people leaving dangerous situations and moving into another place where they feel safe. Um, we see that in the Bible. And in fact, you know, in Deuteronomy, when God's talking to us and saying, and he identifies three groups of people that we are to take care of, right? The widows, this is obvious. The orphans. Who's the third one? The aliens, the strangers. And he feels, so God feels this this necessity of explaining that third one. So he doesn't just name strangers. He goes on to say, because you should be kind, you should be kind to strangers because you were once strangers in a strange <coughs> land. Reminding the Jews that you 
or immigrants. And therefore, you should also be kind to immigrants in your midst because that's your heritage. And if I'm looking at the room today, I, there may be people of Native American descent here, but I'm, say, I'm thinking most of us can say the exact same thing. Our ancestors were once strangers in a strange land, and we're here today because our ancestors took that journey um, to the U.S. So, and that's a very brief, I've still got an hour, Linda, to, to go from here. But <laughs> your timing? Okay. Um, so that's, that's it from a um, religious standpoint, one, one approach of looking um, at immigration from that standpoint. Um, I thought it might be helpful to you to divert briefly um, from a Sunday school lesson into a brief civics lesson because, as some of you might know, uh, I do uh, international human rights law as my avocation. Um, I pay the rent by practicing immigration law, so I'm an immigration attorney. That's what I do when I go to work every day. Um, so I thought it might be helpful if you had uh, just a very brief two-day seminar on how the immigration system works. <laughs> we can't do that either, and Linda's keeping time. So I'm going to go a very quick, um, brief civics lesson on how this works. But here's why. Uh, there was a professor at Emory University where I went to school that um, Deborah Lipstadt, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she wrote a book on Holocaust deniers. And one of the people she named in the book sued her for defamation for her calling him a denier of the Holocaust. And she had this great quote that said, um, everyone's entitled to an opinion, but if your opinion is based on falsehoods, you can expect me to challenge it. Um, I'm going to modify that a bit. That's a little bit harsh. But, um, but I think it is helpful that, that you know, everyone, and I know everyone in here has a different opinion about immigration, but if we're going to try to collectively look at this as an issue of faith, um, I think it's important for us to understand that you know, everyone has an opinion, but if it's based on misunderstanding or inaccuracies, um, then it's subject to a question of its credibility. So you know, maybe we can at least be informed of how it works, um, and that can help us again inform the way that we as Christians live out our faith uh, in the midst of this challenge which is a challenge uh, for us and all over the world this is not a uniquely American issue um, as we now know it's a global issue so uh, let me let me just quickly <laughs> as quickly as I can uh, tell you how it works so here's the civics lessons okay I'm going to start off with the softballs again how many um, parts of the government do we have? Three. Okay, what are they? Legislative, Legislative judicial, judicial, and executive. Okay, we got that right. So here's the executive branch. Okay. You have the president, and under the president you have the different departments. Okay. One of the departments um, that I deal with on a daily basis is the Department of Homeland Security. Now, who here has heard of INS? Okay, raise your hand. Go ahead, Ray, if you've heard of INS. What is INS? 
the Immigration Naturalization Service. Um, so if you don't learn anything else today, you should learn today that the Immigration Naturalization Service no longer exists. You're being outdated if you use INS because in 2001, uh, Congress passed that other legislative, you know, the legislative branch passed the U.S. Patriot Act, which established the Department of Homeland Security. So now you have the Department of Homeland Security. Before that, you had INS, and they were part of the Department of Justice. Okay, so you got the Department of Justice. They moved from there. Now everything is under the Department of Homeland Security. And Homeland Security has three major parts that, that we work with. The first is USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. The purpose of USCIS is to look at petitions for a visa and, and evaluate whether someone is eligible for a visa. We'll talk about that in a second. Another part, another branch of the Department of Homeland Security is ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They're the ones that round up people and deport them. Okay, that's the, the enforcement arm. The third branch is Customs and Border Protection. They're the guys that are at the Hartsfield International Airport looking at your passport when you come back in after you've been overseas. Okay? And they, they guard all the ports of entry. Now, you also have Border Protection, and they're the ones that guard the rest of the area between ports of entry, you know, the, the southern border, northern border. That's, border. that's the Border Patrol. Border Protection is at the gates when you come in at the airport. So those are the three areas, um, and that's where immigration comes from. Um, so how do you get into the country legally? I know how you get it in illegally, right? You got a 30-foot wall, 31-foot ladder, right? But, but how do you legally come into the country? What's the process? Does anybody know? Okay. I'm hearing lots of answers. Um, so I'll just go ahead and tell you. Well, most people need a visa, right? If you're not a citizen of the United States, you need to get a visa. So here's how you get a visa. You file a petition with USCIS, show that you're eligible for a visa. If it's approved, they send it to the Department of State. Now we've added a third department now, right? The Department of State runs the embassies. So they take the package that we file, they used to send it as a courier, but now it's electronic, send it to the embassy, and they look at the packet once everything is together, then the foreign individual that wants to come to the United States goes to the embassy for an interview. And if everything goes well in the interview, they'll leave their passport with them. The embassy will put a U.S. visa in their passport, send it back to them. They take it. They go to the airport, get on a plane, and come to the United States. So that's a quick and easy way of, of figuring out how, how to come into the country. Well, it depends, and here's why. Because a visa is nothing more than a ticket to ask for admission to the United States. The visa status tells you what you can do while you're here. So, there are many, for every letter of the alphabet, there's a visa. Okay? 
there's an A visa, there's a B visa, there's a H-1B visa, there's a J visa. I mean, I could go through the alphabet, but I think you know it. Um, so, depending on what you want to do while you're here depends on how long it takes to process that visa application. Because if you are, for example, a per person of extraordinary ability or multinational executive, you have to show um, a lot of corporate documents to show the relationship between the corporate entity in another country in the United States, um, a lot of background information on the person. It takes a long time to get that together, um, and it may take seven to nine months to process that at USCIS before it goes to the embassy, and then they have to take an interview there. It may take two or three weeks. So, you know, something like that could take a year to do. Um, if it's simply a visitor, somebody wants to come to go to Disney World, um, they can apply for a B visa and just show up, you know, apply online and show up at the embassy without someone in here in the U.S. filing the petition first. So, you know, that could just take a matter of weeks. So it depends on what type of status you're asking for. Mike, it also depends on the country you're coming from because when my granddaughter was over here from the Philippines, uh, years ago now, her fiance wanted to come over. They wouldn't give him a visa because right. they were afraid he's going to get out of the country and would not come That's right. So when you come into the country, you, you you, sh you show up in front of that customs and border protection officer. If you heard the question, you know, she had a um, someone from the Philippines who is a fiance trying to come here. Well, the, the reason they won't give you a visitor's visa if you're a fiance is because they think, well, as soon as you get here, you're going to stay here. You're going to overstay your visa. Every person who comes into the United States comes with a presumption, a legal presumption, that they're going to overstay the visa. So each person, regardless of where they're from, but some areas like the Philippines or third world countries, it's much harder. You have to you have to persuade that customs officer that you're going to go home when your visa expires. Okay, so that's why um, it's hard to get a visa. I mean, I know there's a misperception out there that people just get visas. Uh, it's very hard to get a visa, um, and it takes a long time. Well, he, he tried to show them that, you know, he, he was an architect, but he was also a minister, and he had a church. They had reasons for coming back, but they still denied him. Yeah. So, so remember, it's the visa status that tells you what you can do while you're here. Um, what tells you how long you can be here? Does anybody know the answer to this question? Isn't that a limit of 30 days? Well, it depends on what type of visa you get. But what, what, what can you look at to determine how long you can stay in the, in the country? Yeah, it's not the visa. Remember, the visa is nothing more than a ticket to apply to come into the U.S. What they give you is an I-94 card. Has anybody heard of an I-94 card? You don't hear about that, right? Well, that's the most important card there is because it's the I-94 that that customs officer, when you come into the U.S., they're going to say, you can stay here for this amount of time, and they're going to write it down, and it's on that I-94 card that tells you how long you can be in the country, not your visa. Your visa can expire. The visa may not be good for six months, but you're entitled to be here for six years or three years or whatever. It depends on what type of visa status you have. So it's the I-94 card that tells you how long you can be in the country, not your visa. 
So I'm going to mess it up a little bit more, confuse you a little bit more. Not everybody needs a visa to come into the United States. If you're from Canada and you want to visit family, all you do is show up with your passport and there's no visa in it. We have what's called a visa waiver program. You probably heard about that recently. Uh, people, we have treaties with countries like Germany and England and, and Italy, places where we go without having to get a visa first, right? When we travel, we don't need a visa to go to England. Well, they don't need a visa to come here either. So they don't have a visa. You can look in their passport and find out how long they can be here. It's the I-94 that tells you how long they can be here. So, um, so in this increasingly confusing mess, I want to throw out the next question. So I was listening to the radio the other day, and, and I heard the president say, well, if you are here illegally, you can expect to be deported. If you don't have a legal right to be here, then you, know, you shouldn't expect to remain here. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that's a pretty compelling statement. I mean, how do you argue against that? If you don't have a legal right to be here, why should you expect to be here? Why wouldn't you be deported? Well, I think one way to answer that question is, you know, through our faith-based analysis that we looked at earlier. So there's, there's that, you know, a, a, a faithful way or, or a grace-filled way that you might answer that question. But I want to answer that from a legal question from a legal perspective. So what does it mean to be here illegally? You didn't go through all that process. Okay. Well, that would be the place to start. So if you didn't go through the process, um, then, you, you know, you're not here legally. Um, you don't you have a right or permission. Right. Yeah, so here's something I get. I'll, I'll, here's two things I hear a lot. One is, well, I'm not against immigration. I'm only against illegal immigration. Yeah, only illegal immigrants. And I get phone calls every week from people saying, I want to get my papers. Um, I want to be legal. You know, they're not legal, but they want to become legal. Well, you know, it's not so easy. So let me ask you this. I want everybody to take a second. Linda's counting. Yeah. 10 seconds. 20 seconds. Think of where you were in 1998. Okay. Think back to, to 1998. Are we having a, Is that successful? Everybody thinking back to 1998? Okay. If you are, and I'm just using this as an example, if you are the married child of a U.S. citizen, but you were born in Mexico, you had to have filed your application in September of 1998 to be eligible to apply for a green card today on June 6, 2017. So, you know, it's not that easy. I mean, it's the point. It's not that, you know, you, people may want to be legal, but there's not a, you know, an efficient way to do that. Um, so I'm going to, instead of going through all the law of, of what might apply, um, I'm going to give you some examples. I'm going to quiz you a little bit on situations. And you tell me whether the person is here, whether this person has a legal right to be here or not. Legal right to be here or deported. Okay? Here's example number one. You have a woman living in Guatemala who is a part of a, an Indian tribe 
Um, and the government of Guatemala military comes in and starts pushing people off of their land. And the people that won't go voluntarily, they round up and they put into prison or they torture them or they kill them. So uh, this woman from this specific Indian tribe finds a way to get to the United States, jumps over the wall, crosses the river, does not go through the correct process to get here, um, but escapes Guatemala um, and she gets here. Does she have a legal right to be here? Now she didn't get a visa, didn't have a passport. Does she have a legal right to be here? Yeah, she does. So we have a law. So you know, the, the question is, you know, what does the law allow? The question is, does this person have a legal right to be here? Well, the law allows someone who is of a specific ethnicity or, um, you know, one of these traits such as ethnicity, political background, um, that that they might have. And the second thing is that they show that they are under threat of harm for physical harm or their, their life, um, and that the government is either unwilling or unable to protect them, then that's the criteria to show for asylum. And our law provides an opportunity for people who are subject to those conditions to apply for asylum here, even though they didn't go through the right way. Um, here's a second example. You have a 12-year-old kid, and these are, these are common examples I'm giving you. So um, you have a 12-year-old boy who's in, um, we'll change it up, we'll say he's from um, El Salvador. And this is common, the drug gangs there come into the house and they threaten everyone in the house and, and often they'll kill the parents or um, brothers or sisters to try to get someone to join that drug gang to join them. So this 12-year-old escapes. Um, now he's not a part of a, a specific tribe or ethnicity or anything like that, but he runs, he crosses and gets into the United States, jumps over the fence, and he's here. Um, does he have a legal right to be here? Okay. Under the other circumstance, yes, yeah. well, but, yeah. but he doesn't have it until he applies and it's granted, does he? Well, that's true. Everybody has to apply you know, to get granted benefit. But um, so he doesn't doesn't he doesn't um, not eligible for asylum because he can't prove all those elements like we did in the first example. But there's a law called the Special Immigrant Juvenile Status that allows a child under 14 who comes here unaccompanied. Part of the fact pattern there was that um, his family was killed. There's no one to take care of him. There, so he's, he's here under the age of 14, has, uh, has been abandoned or has no one to take care of him. And um, there's a law that says you can apply for permanent residency, a green card, because you meet, meet those criteria. Uh, I'm going to stop there, you know, because I can give you another example. A worker from Mexico jumps over the fence and comes here. Is he here illegally? No, right? And so he doesn't have a right to be here. I mean, so I'm not saying every situation is like that. But if I can at least get the point across that it's much more complex, that you can't um, so easily figure out who has a lawful right to be here and not, unless you know their complete background, you know, the fact situation uh, that got them here. 
Um, and let me quickly say, illegal immigration is not good for anybody. There's nothing to be redeemed from illegal immigration. Um, we know that border towns are often overrun with social services of people coming in. Um, and the people who do come in are often, they pay coyotes who are criminals, it's human trafficking. Um, people take advantage of them if they're employed here. So nobody wins with legal immigration, right? We know that. Um, but how is it that we analyze who it is that we treat as an illegal person or someone who's here has a legal right to be here? It's very complex, is my point. It's not so easily um, figured also, out. Also, Mike, don't they have to be educated in knowing that they right. have the process to go through? Yeah, I mean, that's a good example. I mean, that's a very good point. Think of the grandmother living in Guatemala. Yes, Linda had a great point. Um, she doesn't know immigration law, no, you know, right? She didn't know that she was eligible for asylum when she got here. She is because our law allows it, but she didn't know that when she got here. And we don't know the law of Paraguay. I mean, if we wanted to immigrate to Paraguay, would we know what we needed? No. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's one part. Now, here's the next question. So how is it that we identify people who are here illegally. I mean, how do, how do, what do illegal people look like? <laughs> so, okay, so if ICE comes in the door right now, who here can prove to ICE that you are here legally? Who, who right now at, at 1040, you can't go home, you have your birth certificate with you? No. <laughs> I think I'm the only one that gets to go home today. You know, because um, I can prove that I'm a U.S. citizen. Um, who else can prove that you're here legally? That you're not from Canada? That's great. Yeah, so that's a, okay, perfect example, okay? So the truth is, we're not afraid of ice coming in the door right now, are we? No. We're not afraid of that, because we eat grits. We talk like we're from, I talk like I'm from Southern Appalachia. It's hard to, it's hard to duplicate this kind of dialect, right? <laughs> but, uh, but there's a church 20 minutes down from here that's empty this morning because they are afraid ice is going to come in. And because they're not gathering, you know, in spaces together because there is a fear that ICE will come in and, and they are going to have to prove, you know, their eligibility. So, um, or their lawfulness to be here. And let me just make one final thing real quick, and I, and I am going to, to wind up here. But um, going back to Linda's question about the law, I, I, I see a lot of people who think, well, if I'm here illegally, if I came across without a visa, and I marry a U.S. citizen, I'm a U.S. citizen. Right? Well, that's not true. But a lot of people think that. They don't understand what the law is. So a lot of people think they're legal, walking around, when they don't understand that they're not, because they don't understand what the law is. You can get a green card by marrying a U.S. citizen, and then you have to apply for a green card to show that you're eligible and that you're admissible, that you're not going to 
get means-tested benefits if you're here, that you don't have a communicable disease that you could spread. I mean, there's lots of things that you have to, to show before you're, you can get a green card. Um, and a green card, just so that we're clear, is not citizenship. It's only permanent residency. It means that you can stay here permanently, but you're not a citizen. You have to apply for citizenship after you've been a permanent resident, after you've had a green card for five years. Or if you're married to a U.S. citizen, it's only three years. So, so you know, trying to pull all of this back together again, the only point I'm trying to make is that it's not a simple question. Um, and so when we go back, you know, just the complexity of, of what immigration law is and what you know, rights some people have and not have, that, um, that we go back you know, to the very beginning of our recognition of people as children of God, different places, different languages, different um, places of origin. Um, so what's our obligation? What, what are we as Christians to do, regardless of how we feel about the issue, um, how do we approach this from a Christian perspective? Well, I'm going to punt that question, <laughs> and I'm going to defer to the discipline of the United Methodist Church. And let me just read to you what the United Methodist Church says about immigration. In section 162 it says, we recognize, embrace, and affirm all persons, regardless of country of origin, as members of the family of God. So we've made full circle here. And I'm glad to see that the United Methodist Church has affirmed what I just said earlier. We urge the church and society to recognize the gifts, contributions, and struggles of those who are immigrants and to advocate for justice for all. We oppose immigration policies that separate family members from each other or that include detention of families with children, and we call on local churches to be in ministry with immigrant families. So that's a challenge to us. I mean, we, we come with different viewpoints and different perspectives on the issue. Um, and so our challenge is to figure out how is it that we um, work in a unified voice, not with one language, right, not with all the same words, but in the way that God reveals to us individually, distinctly, and uniquely um, from our own perspective that um, we are called to be brothers and sisters of Christ, of people from everywhere regardless of where they come from. So, I would ask for questions, but I think our time is up. So, thank you.